What's up, Gordon? Hey, Joe. How's things? Good, good. Thanks for having me here. I yeah, uh, really time. appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so, uh, for the audience, Gordon and I, uh, we, we we have these like scheduled monthly chats, and I feel like each of these chats could could have been a uh, podcast. So, um, uh, I figured our or <laughs> uh, let's just do a podcast. <laughs> so. yeah. Actually, Joe, I never told you. I actually really value our monthly chats. I feel like I, I feel like I made the short list because I know you're a busy guy. Oh, you did. Yeah, you made the short list, and I, I feel I feel the same way, right? I know you have a lot going on, and uh, for you to uh, you know slap some time with me is um, that's awesome. So it's well, it's a small community, but at the same time, it's kind of a lonely community, right? We're all still working remotely, and it's difficult to find peers sometimes, um, especially when you know our our field is so wide. You know, people can have so many different specialties. It's hard to find someone who could talk about the whole thing, and and then really talk about it at a higher level, right? Sort of like solutions and return on investment and why we actually do this. What's the raz- what's our raison d'etre, as they say, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of conversations, um, uh, just a lot of ideas percolating in the industry right now. It's, uh, it's some we'll dig into it for a bit, but I, I guess for the, for the audience first, if they don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Sure. So yeah. I am Gordon Wong. I am a career data and analytics guy. Uh, my technical co- competency is really around, always been around databases. I started off as a DBA. I think in SQL, I picture data models in my head as I walk down the street. It's just, it's just the way I see the world. And then, you know, and my, my entire career, I've pretty much fluctuated between being like manager of some type um, and driving solutions or being an IC and, and getting my hands uh, dirty. Um, and I really enjoy that. And I think it actually gives me uh, an interesting perspective because I've, I, I've, I've done that cycle many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you have. You're definitely a OG in this whole uh, field here. But um, kind, of, kind of backing up, right? I think there's some themes here. You, you, you've seen the data field, um, you know, from I would say fairly early days to, to now. Like, what's... Instead of asking what's changed, I think we all kind of have ideas of what's changed. What, what, what's stayed the same? Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, I think we're still amateurs. Mm. Well, I think we're still amateurs the way we do things. You know, our methodologies, our titles, our processes, how our teams work, how we, you know, start projects, how we deliver projects, how we measure value. I think we're, we're amateurs across the board. Um, and you just look at look at the state of something as simple as source code control. Mm. You know, I mean... How many how many SQL developers out there are still saving files to, you know, onto a machine or just leaving it in a tab in something like you know in uh, in the Snowflake's UI, right? Just having a save it as a tab, just trusting that it's going to be there in the future. You know, uh, how often do you get actual code review and uh, and feedback on the SQL you write? You know, and then, and if you do get feedback, you're getting feedback on things like your syntax. How often do you get feedback on the actual result? That's <laughs> such a good point. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and so I think I feel like the rest of the industry, or not the rest of the industry, but the software enge- engineering overall is a lot more mature than us. And then, of course, you compare something like software engineering to manufacturing, which has a physical world and you get constant feedback. That's much more physical and much more uh, mature. Um, we're just so abstracted and we're so, you know, and we're so far away sometimes from the middle of the organization that I think we're still just sort of winging it. So far away from the organization. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's something else that's interesting, right? Yeah. Describe that, though. Like, what what does that mean? Because I think it's interesting because I think we have sort of this, um, 
data is the center of the uh, universe, so to speak. But then we step outside of it and we realize like how far away we are from a lot of the uh, business. I do ag- agree with that observation, but walk me through that. Like how, how did you arrive at this? Well, I, th- I think it's just, I think it's just the observation of like having done so many projects and, you know, you know, the struggle of getting them conceived to communicate them, to get them funded, to measure outcomes, and then really have it, have some idea of like, what difference did I make? Right. Um, and so, and I think it has a lot to do with the way we brand ourselves and talk about ourselves. Like, you know, someone might say, Hey, I'm a SQL developer. Okay. Well, what does that mean? You write SQL. Okay, cool. That's a, that's a useful skill. It's an activity, though, more than a skill, right? Yeah. Right? Like, now you say, someone, I'm a finance analyst, and what I do is I help close the books every month. Okay, I have an idea what that person does and what they care about, mm-hmm. right? You tell me you're a SQL developer, but what? What are you using your skills for? Right? So I think we, we still are guilty, like so many technical people, are really talking about our technical skills and our activity as opposed to our purpose. Right? That's a so huge that, point. When I when it, it, maybe this is reflected too, um, when I when I look at how analysts or data scientists or even data engineers these days are, are have been taught, and I think this is changing finally. But historically, it's been um, you know data science is about knowing pandas and Python and SQL, right? Like that's if you if you were to look on like LinkedIn, for example, or Twitter or something, and you ask people what um, you know, a role would be, I would, I would wager to guess more than half the answers uh, would, mm-hmm. would come back with a description of the tool sets that people use. Right. Right. I agree. I agree. And it's not to say that's not important, right? The tool set is really important because, you know, we, because you know, a lot of the tools are not that fungible yet, you know, and, or they're not that interchangeable, right? If you're using Databricks versus Snowflake, yes, yeah, and the concepts are the same, but if you, you know, you sit me down in front of Snowflake, I'm pretty comfortable. You sit me down in front of Databricks, 30 years experience, I don't know where to start, right? I'd be like, is there a SQL window somewhere? Where do I click, right? You know, so the tools do matter, but but, but I, I still think we overemphasize them and then we're identifying too much by that. Yeah. Um, and I'll, you, let me use data science, for example, for a second, you know, because we're repeating the same mistake here. You know, mm. someone says, hey, you're a data scientist. I'm like, great, what do you do? You know, why? why I, I, you know, it's like I do linear algebra, right? You know, or whatever. Right. But what do you do? What do you accomplish? Or maybe more interestingly, you, I'm Joe, I'm sure you've had this conversation many times when someone has said to you, where should I put my data science group? Mm. Right? Where in, the, where in the company should I put my data science group? And somewhat challengingly, I'll ask you, well, where do you have your algebra group? Yep. Right? <laughs> where do you have your typing group? Right? <laughs> Those things are activities. You know, but we organize companies around function. So your data, your data science team or your data scientists should be where they can make the most impact, right? You know, and and so I think like so I think when we got to got the term analytics engineer, I think part of the reason why that term really took off is it got a little closer to the function. Well, what does the analytics engineer do? Oh, well, typically they transform data into knowledge and make it usable. Well, okay, and that's just a little closer to the business, right? You know, but what does a data engineer do? You talk to a business person, they have no idea. <laughs> you know? This is a foreign concept. Yep. Right. Right. Because they're so far away. You know, oh, I'm going to hit some API to create this event stream to dump this stuff into a staging area. Mm-hmm. Uh, at what point did you sign a customer up? Right. right. At what point did you sign a marketing campaign? 
right? Yeah, it's like if you hired a a carpenter. Yes. Right, and they and they're like, yeah, I use like a Makita a handsaw, <laughs> yeah. and um, you know this brand of a uh, tape measure here, and you'd just be like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. I think that's a great example, right? Um, uh, a, a situation I think about a lot where. You know, this goes a little bit broader. It's like about a few years ago, about 10 years ago, we, we needed a new deck put on our house. We just bought our house. The old deck was falling apart. It had no railings. It was like, you just, oh, you just, sweet. yeah, you, you didn't even want to be on it. Right. And um, I live in Somerville, Mass, very congested. We we're very fortunate to have a small yard, but we want, you want to maximize that square footage. Right. So got a contractor to come in and give us a quote. And uh, what this guy told, basically told us is like, I'm, you know, I'm really good at building decks. I can build you the best deck in the world, right? And what he wanted to do is cover my entire yard of a deck. <laughs> it was really good, right? You <laughs> right? You know, right? You know, like where am I gonna where am I gonna dock the boat? Pretty much. And so that didn't work, right? And then the next guy comes in and he says, um, almost word for word, right? He said, "I can do anything you want. Just tell me what you want. I can do anything." Okay. Mm. Well, okay, then, now, but but that's still like I'm not an expert on decks, right? You know, you want me to choose the wood, the nails, the paint, whatever, what, right? So that didn't, you know. So we talked to the third guy, and he said, and he started off with, "Tell me about you. What do you guys like to? What do you want to use your yard for? Do you have kids? Mm -hmm. Do you have parties? You know." And then he figured out the function, the payoff of what the deck would be would would mm -hmm. lead. And it turns out what we needed was not a deck, but rather a patio, right? You know, so instead of being elevated, but being flat, stone, whatever, and he, you know, and he walked us through how this would support our ability to grill and so on and so on, and it's not flammable and all this stuff. That guy got the job, right? He didn't tell me how good he was at driving nails. He helped me understand what my needs were, picture an outcome, and then design a solution to meet that outcome, right? And he taught me to be a better customer. Mm. Right? That's a good point. Right? It was really important. He framed up the question. These are the questions you need to answer that I cannot answer for you. Like, do you like to throw parties? Right? He didn't ask me uh, bullshit questions like, you know, what kind of nails do you want to use? <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> you know, so I think about that a lot when, when I talk to my, my folks and lead teams and so on. Like, hey, you know, when you're working with a stakeholder or a customer, you know, you're trying to drive an outcome. So you need to know what who your customers are, what they care about, and how you're doing right now, right? And uh, and the customer is never going to ask you to go. They may ask you, okay, they may ask you to review SQL, but they're not going to ask you to write Scala, right? Yeah, you know, they're not going to ask for it, right? You know, that's really interesting. A question about that that uh, that third uh, carpenter, by the way. So when when he asked you questions, were they uh, um, were they framed in such a way that you ended up making the decision on your own, like? Uh, or or how did he do that? I'm very I'm very curious. I, yeah, he, I mean, he really explored our needs. Now, yeah. to, to be frank, he was a better mason than he was a carpenter. So he was he did he was incentivized to lead me down the mason route. Oh, okay. But you know, I've I've used him multiple times since and recommended him to neighbors and everyone. We all have everyone has a like glowing you know reviews of this guy, mm -hmm. who, and he, he takes the time to listen learn about you, figure out your budget, this kind of stuff. And consistently actually came in under budget, right? And how often do you hear that? That's amazing. Oh, give me this give me his number. Um, yeah, he's all. <laughs> but that, you know, 
it's interesting because I've had good carpenters and, and good. Uh, uh, we did a remodel here uh, a few years ago, and it was uh, kind of hellacious, right? And definitely yeah. get some get definitely get some. I would say bozos in the mix um, for sure. Like one guy uh, ended up like ruining our furnace and kind of uh, bailing. Um, so that was expensive. Um, and yeah, one of the other carpenters, I think he was uh, yeah under budget all the time. Extremely honest. He was slow, but he would tell you, look, I mean, I got a lot of projects. I'm, I'm cheap because I'm going to come and do this when I have a chance. And thankfully, it's on stuff like a deck where it's not mission critical. So, you know, you can do it. But, uh, you know, we've since referred him to other people. But, you know, and he's and he did a lot of maintenance around our house, too, and a lot of repairs. And it was like, yeah, you don't need to replace anything. Just I'll just patch it up for you. I'm like, OK, if it works, it works. So but it's interesting, right, because he was always focused on the results. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to you know, use, use these tools to do this job and whatnot. And, and he was just really honest and, um, you know, I think it always exceeded expectations. I think to draw it back to data, like that's, to me, that's, that's where you start winning is if you can start, uh, you know, overvaluing, um, uh, you know, delivering more value and, you know, less time people like that. I mean, it's sort of the immutables, right? I mean, people right. just want quality and cheaper and, uh, quicker than, than they thought. So, yeah, I have a you know I have a bit of a blue collar background. I was lucky enough to work for oh, nice. my, my yeah I worked for my friends uh, my friend's dad as a roofer in in college and Boy, I, I've been a caterer. It was great, but you know like it goes back to things like uh, you know if people say hey you know what's people ask me like what's the most valuable thing you've ever learned in any of your jobs and I'll say how to pack a truck right yeah All right and then and you think you picture okay six thirty in the morning January winter break right New Jersey so it's going to be like five degrees and dark. And you need to pack the truck for the day. What do you need to do in order to pack the truck? Right? I mean, of course, you need the truck, you need to know where the supplies are, you know, but you also might need to know who's on the crew today. Mm-hmm. What's the job? Is it a shingle job? Okay. How big is the house? Then that tells you how big of a ladder you need. Mm-hmm. Or is it an industrial job? Oh, we're doing tar today. Oh, okay, I need a heater and this and that and stuff like that. So the reason why packing a truck became such a valuable skill was like, is like you need to understand the outcomes for the day and the plan for the day, right? Mm-hmm. And what the crew was. And if you didn't get these things right, the whole day was ruined, right? You drive an hour to a job site and you have the wrong ladder, your day is ruined, right? Right. And so, and I and I've brought that thinking. And the same thing for catering. You got to bring the chairs, the table, the, oh, the yeah. dishes, all that stuff, right? Um, there's no extra time in catering. And uh, so I brought I brought the same kind of thinking though to daily standups, mm. right? You know, hey, what's the goal for today, right? What's our plan for getting there? And what kind of blockers do you anticipate? I always ask those three questions, right? And the, the blockers is a little bit like the follow-up question, who can help, right? And I don't worry about trying to do a week, a month, or a year in terms of roadmap or planning until we can get the day done. You know, if you can't execute for a day, why right. turn it back for a week, right? Um, and I've seen it over and over again. I think, you know, I think at Fitbit, um, getting the daily stand-up nailed, I think gave us 40% yield bonus. Interesting. Right? So I was like, on a team of 10, it was four more engineers for free. With better morale, a better sense of self-worth, right? Better relationship with customers, all this stuff. You know, I mean, it was just totally, and then, yeah, this is a basic thing. Just get your day right. Pack your truck, Right. And what changed? I mean, walk me through that process because that's it's a pretty remarkable uh, outcome. Um, I think a lot of it was um, understanding 
the challenges of working as a, as a disparate team, right? Um, the challenges of nailing down requirements and understanding outcomes, the challenges around focus, you know, so it, it did help that, you know, we waffled PT. I won't say it was super smooth. It took a, it took a couple months. Of course it won't be. Yeah. Right. But we waffled Petit Kanban and Scrum. We split the teams a couple different ways by skill set and also by by business units. We tried a whole bunch of different things. And, and a lot of it was just really understanding, making this realization that having a bunch of different people work together is hard. Right. So and what are the things that make it hard? Well, one of the number one things is just communication. Right. So and then so you could spend two hours talking on your daily stand up. That's a way of communicating, but that's a huge amount of overhead, right? That's already you've already burned up everyone's attention resources. They're not gonna have much left. So being aware that communication is both valuable but expensive led me down the route that like, oh yeah, I want to maximize the ROI of our communication. Right, getting everyone to drop what they're doing, come together, pay attention for 10, 15 minutes, be open and creative and so on is actually not for free. You know. Part of the reason I wanted my stand-ups to be 15 minutes is because they're actually, you know, because a 45-minute stand-up was just exhausting, you know. Uh, whereas you can come up with a 15-minute stand-up sort of like fired up, ready to go. And so there's a lot of like these things, you know, so you, you know, you, and I did a lot of like tweaking the board and reminding everyone, hey, let's, you know, let's pull the board up and let's make sure you update your tickets and so on and being forgiving about it too. Like just remember when you update your ticket, you're actually doing other people a favor, mm. right? You're unblocking your team. You're not doing it for me. I'm not even doing the work for the most part in those cases, right? But you're unblocking your team, right? And then when you when you tailor all the activities in your team around unblocking your teammates, friction goes gets remarkably low, right? You know, there's other examples like always do code reviews before you write new code, right? If someone's waiting for you to do a code review, that's a, that's the most important thing you could do. You're unblocking somebody else. And that, and, and consider what that person is asking you to do. They're saying, please help me improve my work. Mm. That's a very vulnerable thing to do, but incredibly critical. And so I think it should be responded to in the same tone, you know, with generosity and coaching and patience, right? It's not an opportunity to criticize. You know, it's definitely not an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I don't like the way you did the spacing here. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Right. Um, but how do you, how do you coach, I would say, roles that are notoriously pedantic and fickle and I would say solo to a large degree? Like, how yeah. do you coach non-pedantic and team-oriented behavior? Yeah, it's not easy. And then, and then of course, there's circles here. So, right, because we're talking, we started off talking about why data projects fail and what has yeah. to name. And a lot of it is lack of empathy with the stakeholder in there. Mm. So, part of the reason why we want, if you want to have empathy for the stakeholder and be tied to outcomes, you need to have empathy for your teammates too and for yourself. So, I think a lot of it, there, again, there's no, there's no magic solution here, but a lot of it's patience, it's empathy, it's modeling, it's being, it's checking your own behavior. So, hey, how often, you know, frequently you, you get picked to lead a data team or a technical team of some kind because you're the most, because of your strong technical skills, right? But as a manager, yes, you're still expected to contribute technically. And don't let's not have too much false modesty there, right? But that's not your primary outcome anymore. Right. Right? Um, you got five people working for you. You got 10 people working for you. If they're 50% utilized, you just lost half the team. It doesn't matter. You better be 5x more productive than anyone else if you're going to make up for that. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of practicality. 
So if you're gonna if you're gonna get a good ROI of this team, if you're gonna live up to the trust the organization has put in you, then you need to be thinking about how do I get this group to move together, you know, um, and but also be concede that you know ten people are probably not ten times as productive as one person, right? So what's you know study this, figure out what's what's a reasonable outcome, and what are the blockers there? Theory of constraints, right? Theory of limits here. What's holding us back? You know, it's like oh. Hey, we're spending a lot of time communicating. You know, how do we make communication smoother? Um, how do how do I get people to share and so on? Help. Well, I think working on their empathy. You know, and this is why we have things like retros. We're like, hey, it's like you know. So here's a great opportunity for you. You know, you're awesome at Python. You've got lots of skills here. So and so is just getting started. You know, I think it'd be great for the team and the project if you could you know help them improve their work. Right. Do you have any experience coaching other people? Do you have? Do you know how to do a PR a, a code review? Okay, here's a great article I read on it. You know, and here, or we could talk. We can walk through one together. Let's do it. Right. Let's learn together. And so, but but trying to boil it down to this, like simple things again that, that that unblocking someone else is almost always almost always more profitable than unblocking yourself. Mm. Right. Almost always. Right. It, it doesn't feel that way. You know, you think because your name's attached to a story. So then you're, you, you as a manager or, uh, and also the team, you need to create a safe environment where people can feel comfortable helping others before doing their own thing. That's key. Right. Which means you own outcomes together. Right. Um, I mean, what would you say if you were on a sprint team and this manager said, Hey, you know, we, we lined up, we've lined up 10 stories in the sprint and so on and so on. And at the end of the sprint, during retro, we're going to count up all the story points and see who did the most, right? And the person who did the most is going to get a, a box of chocolates and the person who's going to get a, did the least, well, we're going to have a conversation. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah. Is yeah. that a healthy team? Oh, absolutely not. Right. This Do particular team I'm thinking of, I think the uh, um, it's like 100% toner, turnover each year. Right. Yeah, I don't want to be on that team. Nobody yeah. does, no. And it's not that, I don't, you don't, it's not, that you're holding, not holding people accountable, but like... If you start with only holding individuals accountable for the individual effort, you will never achieve your t- your team outcomes, right? Your team objectives. You know, you know, if you're just gonna like, if you're just gonna measure people individually like that, you know, and then and not give them credit for helping other people and so on and so on, then just you know, just put up a job board and say, hey, everyone, just take your stories or whatever, and I'll pay you per story, <laughs> right? You know, but I don't want to work there. How do you hold a team accountable? Yeah, I think uh, you know, and I, I run the risk of sounding too like almost like a, like a, too like a, like a, like this is a fairy tale. But I think I've seen it over and over again. I think mostly the best way to hold a team accountable is for the team to hold itself accountable, mm. right? And a team's not going to hold itself accountable unless they feel safe to have that internal conversation, which comes from things like retros and building a safe environment. And they're not going to care about accountability unless they care about outcomes, right? So that's why I'm always going to try to tie it back to like, how do we make a difference? And what's the purpose of the company, right? How do we measure what is customer value here, right? And how do we have a how do we make a difference there? So, for instance, you know, um, you know, like I've worked at healthcare companies, right? You know, and so hey, our outcome is to help people on Medicaid have better. Our, our goal is to help people on Medicaid have better outcomes and you and get to know these people, you know, frequently, you know, the patients of a, of a accountable care organization who are on Medicaid 
may never have received any good health healthcare their entire lives. All right. And that's kind of alien to people like us, right? Who've probably, I, I could go see a doctor whenever I want. All right. Um, but like, you know, they think that they've never gotten any decent healthcare or respect from anyone in that position. Mm. It's pretty humbling. And then, so I can get pretty, I can get behind that mission. I'm like, wow, we are helping these, helping people get, have better health outcomes to see a doctor for the first time to help their kids get to a dentist. Great. That's awesome. Now, how do how does my team, how do I contribute to that? Oh, maybe I'm tied into the market organizations. So we're finding people who would benefit from our service. Or I'm in product analytics. Okay, we're measuring, you know, who's getting what services and and so on and like and and figuring out who else could get services. Or or finance, you're like you're helping create good contracts so that we can be sustainable and grow. Now I'm tying into the data side of it, you know, but if I you know, have these outcomes, it's like, okay, in order for finance to close the books, so that we could be financially healthy so that we can get funding and all this stuff, we need to do this claims processing and we need to have it done by the fifth. Okay. That's something I can care about. Right. And I can see that I make a difference. Right. Um, and this, this is the same lessons all through life. Right. Yeah. You know, if you don't think you can make a difference, why do you try? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, and then, you know, we're both parents, right? We, we try to help our kids understand what their agency is in the world, right? Partly so they can make a difference and partly because their lives will just be better. Yeah. Right? Right? So when you help your team understand its purpose, you are going to improve the quality of life for your team. And that's, and that's when you start getting to accountability. That's such a good point. It's super, I would say underrated too because i think in a lot of cases kind of back to your comment about individual contributors becoming managers um people aren't necessarily trained to become managers no right? and, and when you do it's seen as this quote next step in career progression um and if you're not taught management i think what or even if you are let's, let's say for argument's sake we'll say that you aren't i mean all too often what i what i see is um you know, the manager wants to take the credit. The manager wants to, uh, it becomes a self-serving thing. Like how are, you know, how's the team going to help my career go yep. forward? Right. I, that's, I, I think the majority of times that that's what happens. And, and so, you know, it's definitely a, I would say a sign of maturity to take the, more of the approach you're taking. Um, and part of, I think it maybe it helps to have a bad manager in your life. So you kind of understand what not to do. Sure. Um, you know, but uh, no, 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 no disrespect to any manager I've ever had, but yeah, there's lessons to be had there, right? For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, this, again, again, it goes back to a lot of this, like uh, having some modesty and recognition that you know, um, you know, you can't always just be a superstar right away, right? And you're not mm -hmm. going to be the center of attention, and then the things are really stacked against you. Like you think about. You think about the situation of a new manager, as you just pointed out, right? They're not trained. They don't necessarily have training. Um, they are used to succeeding in a certain way, and you're going to take that away from them, right? They don't get the code anymore. They don't get to do whatever they're doing. So that that whole dopamine hit, that even of addiction, is now they're like, they're now in withdrawal, right? So they got to find some other way to get their sense of so you know to stimulate that sort of simulation and self worth and so on. And as a manager, you're frequently your payback is frequently deferred. Right, it's like the it's like the famous experiment with the kids who get you know get an Oreo now or two Oreos later, mm -hmm. right? You know, it takes maturity and time frame to be able to look forward in the future, and we frequently do not create safe environments for new managers. Mm, that's you know? so true, right? So we, we and then we set them up. It's like you know, 
we've been super impressed by your work. We think you're going to be a future organization, all this stuff. Here you go. No pressure, but here's a team and continue being a superstar. Yeah. Right? It's like handing people uh, <laughs> children to raise or something. Um, so it's a lot like parenting in some ways, though, right? I mean, there, there are definitely books on uh, raising kids. Um, yep. I think it's just one of those things where you just have to go do it to really uh, figure it out. Um, you know, it's in a lot of ways, I think it's very similar because it, with management, it you're going to make every mistake in the book, especially as a new manager. It's just I think that's more of the expectation. If you if you um, if you run it perfectly out of the gate, I don't know that that's you probably just got lucky in a lot of cases. It's when you know sometimes it's the team that you 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 inherit and build, yep. and, and sometimes it's it's you, and sometimes it's a combination of the two. But you know, uh, right? And I, I've seen some teams too where I'm just like, yeah, fire the whole lot immediately. Like no, no nothing is going to save the situation at all. No, um, you know, spare them for this, right? Mm-hmm. Totally do. You know, and maybe the people are good, you know, but they're just like this, this team does not work. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, you know, and then, so what, you know, uh, what, what, be mature. What are your options here? Right. What can we do with what we have? Um, yeah. And then let's not mix up success with being good. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, I think we've both seen how, um, you know, I, you know, some of the large organizations out there that have been very successful in the last 20 years, I'm really unimpressed by the managers I see coming out of it. Mm. Like, oh, I thought you would know something, right? You know, um, but then maybe they lack the learning opportunities. You know, when mm-hmm. you're like a, a lot of companies are, you know, think of them as a boat where they're being driven by one. They have like 10 engines, but only one of them really works. But that one engine, whether it be like, you know, the, their initial business model just happens to make up for the fact that the other nine engines aren't really working. Right. Right. Um, and I don't want to be too cynical about it, but there's, let's, let's not underestimate how often that happens. Right. Oh, it's very common. And so you want to get good at something, you need to struggle at it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point, though. And I've seen managers from these uh, yeah, these uh, bigger tech companies, so to speak, and some are great, but some I think there's there's almost like a certain archetype of of manager and employee that come out of these places, you know. And there's because there's a type of a culture there. Each each right. of these companies is different. Uh, some are um, you know maybe nicer than others. Some are just notorious for being very brutal that's the reality of it and i'm not going to say it's right or wrong it just it works for what that company's trying to do and so it's it is what it is right but uh but when they try and go to other organizations what i typically see is they'll take a lot of that um that persona with them you know which can work in some cases and not work right so right in the cases i think of the more aggressive type companies it's typically not going to work you're going to be an asshole (laughs) Yeah. people aren't going to like you. That's yeah. how it is. And, and this goes back to the lack of maturity in our organization, right? We still, we, we struggle with recognizing um, skills and, and, and learnable skills. Right. And then I'll, and I'll make it, uh, make it two comparisons to like sports. You know, you and I are both rock climbers, right? So we both climb, you know, and I'm these days I'm, I'm a V3, V4 bouldering, you know, in terms of bouldering, but if I had to pick an instructor, right. Just based on like, like a one page description in their picture or something like that. Am I going to pick the guy who is like six foot four with really long arms and is 23 years old and climbing V10s? Or am I going to pick the guy who is five years older than me, still climbing V4s and, mm. is four foot, and five foot six, you know, right? 
the guy who's like six five has nothing to teach me. I mean, not that nothing, but he can't teach me to be taller, right? Right. <laughs> right. You know, I want the person who has struggled similar to me and overcome those things. Um, you know, and just like my my older daughter was a uh, soccer cap yesterday, and there's a a woman there who was currently injured, but she's on. Um, if she wasn't injured, she might she be on the on the extended roster for the world for the women's World Cup, right? Dang. And and then she's young and she's like five eleven. You know, my daughter's five six. And the other girls are asking her like, "Well, how did you get? You know, how did you get recruited? How did you get where you where you are?" And she's like, "He goes, frankly, I'm the wrong person to ask." I've, I've been really lucky in my life. I've never had to do a tryout ever, you know, mm. you know, she was just fantastic and people wouldn't pick her. Right. She's the wrong person to ask, right. To, on how to get, what's your strategy for getting recruited by a college team? Right. Cause she didn't overcome the things you have to overcome. Well, so. yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm going through something similar with my uh, youngest kid right now. He's, um, so Salt Lake City is sort of the epicenter of rock climbing and uh, well, one of the epicenters in the world. Um, but every good climber lives here at this point, especially yeah. if you compete, like the U.S. team trains here. Um, and so they had like youth nationals here over the weekend. And so that was kind of cool to, to watch and and whatnot. But, you know, you see a lot of these kids and are working their asses off. My, my youngest kid, he's about 10. He's like, OK, so I'm you know, he's been wanting to compete for a while. And, you know, eventually, I think, wants to go to the uh, U.S. team. But like, OK, so what team do you want to be on, you know? Um, and we finally settled in a gym, but the gym, you know, it's not too, too far from my house, like a five minute drive or something. It's got like, I think like half the kids, uh, who made it to the finals are on this team. Right. So it's like, and the coaches have all competed at the world cup and so forth. So at this point I'm like, okay, so you're probably gonna want these coaches cause they've been through it. Right. They, they know right. what's going on. Um, you know, versus the team, I think you wanted to be on. I mean, it's a good team, but it's like, it just doesn't have the, uh, um, the experience level you know, the depth that this other team does. I, that's what makes a difference. I mean, the, uh, one of the kids on the team, we ended up getting silver at the Olympics, you know, mm. um, you know, and, uh, so that's just a difference. Right. But it does come down to having gone through those hard knocks too. you know, it's, um, same as managers, you know, it's, uh, I, I respect the manager. I think who's at least who's made some screw ups in the past, but is at least, you know, not, not afraid to admit them and understand what went wrong. Cause we all sure. have been there. I mean, I've done things that I would, you know, definitely you know look back on like that you know just kind of a jackass it's fine um you know my oldest kid i haven't watched the office right now because i'm like you know if you just watch uh do it's a michael scott school of uh of leadership right so if you right. just do everything the exact opposite of what he's doing um <laughs> you probably have a pretty good career so. well, you know we just finished the first season of secession which i resisted watching for a mm. while i didn't really want to watch uh rich people misbehaving but um, my wife finally convinced me to watch it. It's been pretty enjoyable. And it, it does strike me as like, it's so much like watching The Office. It's farcical at times. But the other thing is that, you know, for people who don't know what the show is, it's, you know, it's a show on HBO by this very wealthy family. And there's a struggle to see who's going to succeed in the family business. And all the kids are kind of, and like, I've only watched season one. And all the kids are kind of screw-ups for the most mm -hmm. part. But if you are fair to them, you realize it's not really their fault. They haven't been in a situation where they can test themselves and fail. Their father is not someone who lets them fail with any kind of safety, right? They're not learning from their mistakes. And, you know, right, you know, they, they in some ways, there are things stacked against them in that regard. Now, they're not good people for the most part, from what I can tell. But, <laughs> but I do have sympathy for them uh, being expected to perform at a, at a level that they just, they just don't have the experience to do so at.
Yeah. Good show. Worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's a good show. The acting's fantastic. Again, it's not going to leave you feeling good about the world after watching an episode. And there's sometimes I just want to watch something like The Good Place, right? Okay. I haven't watched that either, actually. Interesting. Oh, I'll add that to my list. <laughs> so, I don't watch a lot of shows. It's the weirdest, I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. You're busy, uh, you know, in a, in a, yeah, me too. You know, it's a, so it's something like in, uh, it's just something you do. I do in the evenings and do my PT, right? You know, and then, you know, like the like list and all that stuff, right? Keep those hips working. <laughs> you do what you got to do, man. <laughs> so. uh, uh, there's maintenance. Uh, oh, I yeah. actually, I want to use that as a segue a little bit too, because I'm going to yeah. talk about, um, this is a part again, about, about being mature and being a professional. So when you deliver a knowledge product, whether it be a reporting solution, dashboards, a model or something like that, at what point, does a stakeholder or customer start deriving value? Hmm. That's a good question. Right. It's not meant not, to be a not always, not always immediate. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. And in fact, probably over an extended period of time, right? Yeah. I'm leaving the witness a little bit, but over an extended period of time. And so if you were to picture the curve of accumulated value from a knowledge product, mm. it kind of looks like this, right? slow, you know, it's long and slow at first and, you know, and people have to learn how to use it and you got to evolve it a little bit and it's going to take time, some time. It may, may take years, right? How long does it take to get, you know, positive ROI back from a data warehouse? But compare that to our expectations. When do people think they're going to get all the value? Right now. Yeah. Yesterday, yesterday actually. Yeah. Right. You know, but right now, if I deliver you a reporting solution, I've essentially, you essentially have derived no value and we've incurred a whole bunch of development costs. So the curve, the development costs, or the cost of the solution look more like this, right? The cumulative, it's like, it starts off high, it goes up fast, and then, and then it kind of goes up slowly over time with maintenance and what have you. But if you look at, look at that value over time and look at the maintenance costs, and you just consider that sort of cash flow, mm. um, that maintenance is giving you the most amount of value from that, from that period of time. Meaning like, hey, so the warehouse is down, this pipeline died or whatever, so on, so on. And that person, someone who fixes something before breakfast, and then now it's now it's ready to for business when, when people start working, right? There was a huge amount of ROI in that bit of maintenance, right? But we give it no respect. We give that work to like the lowest ranked person on the team. We might outsource it to another country where people don't even have any context. Hmm. And yet, in some ways, on an ongoing basis, it is the most valuable thing you can do. Let's go back to unblocking others, right? When you unblock others, it might be the most valuable thing you can do in the course of your day. Keeping the solution working, unblocking yeah. users, right? It might be the most valuable thing. That. So I, I wanna, what I want to say, uh, what, what I want, I'm going with this is that when we think about the, not just the total cost of ownership, but the ROI of an existing solution, we should be thinking about the timeframes when we're getting it back. We should think about where the costs are accumulated, right? And we should be factoring in. Let's not let's not treat maintenance as something unfortunate that we have to do. It's an opportunity to drive value, right? So, so I you know I, so I believe really strongly in like you know building good support channels, right? Good documentation. Um, when you have someone who's on on rotation or on call as an engineer, they're the most important person on the team, <laughs> right? Right. If they need help from the rest, if the if they need help, the rest of the team should be dropped whatever they're doing and go help that person. Right. How do you communicate these expectations with uh, stakeholders? Oh well, stakeholders. Well, I mean, part of it is like convincing them 
to trust you, right? And so that mm-hmm. comes goes back to empathy and trying to help them understand that you are on the same team, you know, and that you care about their outcomes, right? And that that, that if they fail, you fail, right? You know, if the if I'm if I'm building a marketing solution and the marketing team can't run profitable campaigns, I am failing. So I need them, right? That's the contract. You bring me good quality problems, I will give you good quality solutions, right? And that's a contract. Um, and, but, and of course, it takes time, right? Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, concede that, hey, I'm not, you know, I might be an expert in my technologies, I might build marketing solutions before, but I'm not, I may not have worked with you before. So let's, how do we, you know, do, where are you in pain? What's, what, where are you struggling? You know, what kind of s- short term project can we do that gives you some immediate relief and also mm-hmm. helps you know each other, right? Um, ask them how they want to work together, how they want to be communicated to, what's going to make them look good with their boss, right? What's going to help them sleep at night, right? You got to care about these things. You know, I, I, I went and got, I, I, I was struggling with my hips a few years ago and I ended up seeing three different surgeons who all wanted to do a hip replacement. Turns out I didn't need a hip replacement, right? Just, oh, I, thank God. <laughs> right? I started doing yoga and going to the gym and 90% of my pain went away, right? But one of these, one of these guys walked into the room he's like looking down at, at a like an mri in his hand right and he just says oh yeah we need to replace this hip he, he didn't even ask me my name he, he never established any trust there was no way in the world i was ever gonna let this guy touch me right and that's the same thing you know you're you're an engineer you're a SQL developer you're going into a stake talking to a stakeholder and yeah. you're paying more attention to technology and you're not caring about them they're never gonna trust you nor, nor should they, right? Right, especially if you come in and say, "Oh, yeah, that you need Snowflake for that." Right, right, right. I'm you want sorry. your you want your stakeholders to be part of the process. You want them to trust you. You got to care about them. Yeah. Who is it? Chris Voss, I think, in a Never Split the Difference, he talks about. You know, it's a book on hostage negotiation. I don't know if you ever read it. Mm-hmm. Um, very good book. Okay. One of the things he always says is when you're uh, negotiating, and again, this guy negotiated hostages. It's not like there's a yeah. win-win situation here. It's like you don't get half of a uh, hostage back. Um, <laughs> his whole thing is first, like, forget about win-win. It's, it's not how this works, right? But you got to understand what's what does this person want, and then yeah. you got to make it their idea. Yep. Right. So, yep. so you always ask open-ended questions. So they can fill in the answers, right? And I think a lot of it's the same way. Where to develop trust, the person has to feel like. Um, you know, you're guiding them down a path um, that was their idea to begin with. Uh, you know, if you come to a stakeholder and say, "Yeah, this is, this is what you need to do," um, you know, hip replacement. Uh, check the checklist, Gordon, whatever your name is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's now you're just being like, I, I would say, ignorantly prescriptive about things. <laughs> so, and can right. you think of what would happen if you had to get the hip replacement for no no earthly reason, right? I mean, you're climbing right now, which would indicate you're. You know, yeah, listen, five years fine, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, know, right? yeah, but I thought that, I think it's interesting because it's just you're absolutely right. You have to build that trust, and but a lot of cases, trust comes from a position of somebody telling themselves they trust you, right? That's a narrative. Like I trust Gordon for these reasons, but it's not yeah. like you had to. You know, it's not like you like beat those reasons into my head, you know, or beat me into submission and said, "Now you trust me." It's like, yeah, totally. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, right? but this is this is what I think a lot of people don't don't realize, and you know, I, I make mistakes in this all the time too. I think everyone does, but it's like you know, it has it has to come from a place where that person decides that they're going to do it. You know, that they're going to take a chance on you, and especially when you're new, you know, they got a, a thing in companies is everyone has a lot of time 
um, that's very limited and a lot of resources and more important, a lot of like social and political capital. And like, why am I going to waste it on you? You know, with a new, this new project, I don't know you, you know, this is a risk. Right. So, right. Right. And, and you know, empirical trust is different from just straight up sort of unfounded emotional trust, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, trust is still always emotional, right? But, you know, so you can't get to empirical trust until you have some history. So yeah. you, you you just need to set up a rational situation where the person realizes that you that your motives and your outcomes are aligned. You know, I, I took over a team that was in distress uh, two years ago. You know, and it was a remote work situation where the, the team was in Europe and I was in Boston. Right, so six hours six hours time difference, thirty people all over, scattered all over Europe. And I the one of the realizations I made first, and then, and then I told the team right away was that I didn't have any power. Mm. Right, I told because I was a contractor. You know, I was I I, I and, and this contract was such that like, I hadn't made it clear that I'm not going to be the hatchet guy. You know, I'm not here to do layoffs. I'm here to turn this team around. Right, and so I realized myself, and then I shared with the team that I had no power. I'm a contractor. I'm on a month by month deal. You're six hours away. I can't see you. I can't look over your shoulder. Here's here. If you don't like me, here's what you do. Just ignore me. Mm. Right. Give me some platitudes and slack, you know, respond to my email <laughs> two or three days and I'll be gone in a month because I'll have failed. Right. So first of all, I told the team that I have no power, you know, they, they had the power. Then secondly, I, to- I asked, you know, I talked about like, you know, but I think we are here because of this outcome that we desire. And here's my experience. And here's some ways I've made a difference in the past. And so I'm going to ask you, given what you, I've tried to share, can you trust me for a month, right? And see, and if if things are a little bit better, can you trust me for another month? And I wrote them a letter. This sounds really corny, right? Now, you know, like a little cringe when I think about it. I wrote called permission to lead, you know. And I put this on in paper and said, you know, hey, this is what I'm asking, right? But you know, the situation you're in right now is not a great one. You know, what do you have to lose if you give me some of your time and focus? Right, and you know, long story short, fast forwarding, I'm super proud that 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 year, I spent a year with them. Uh, I always told them they should be hiring someone full time in their time zone. Right, um, but I'm super super happy with the way that came out. Satisfied, I think a huge number, like over half the people on the team out of thirty went through some kind of career transformation. Um, people have moved on right. to like better roles. You know, they are like, a whole bunch of people. Like I, I can go, you know, we're just like, we're friends now. Right. And, uh, and I still get asked to provide mentorship. So mm, that speaks volumes. Well, it was amazing for me, you know, but I am not trying to sound like a saint. I am saying that by fostering a environment of sharing and, and a common purpose and putting other people first can be a deeply selfish thing because the outcomes can be great. Right. You know, I feel really good about that situation, you know? And so, you know, so like there, there, there are selfish reasons or maybe there's personal reasons to try to foster a environment, mm-hmm. workflow, a, style, a, a, a culture of trust and sharing. That's super huge. And then I guess these people that you um, had in your team, they went on to do other stuff. You still mentor them. Are they um, uh, carrying on the uh, philosophy of uh, St. Gordon? Well, see, right. Yeah. 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 yeah I, th- I think so. Cool. 
I think, and then, and, you know, um, uh, and, and it was difficult at times, right? You know, it's like you know, three months into this gig, you know, the C- COO said to me that, hey, I think you're, you know, you're kind of a softy, you know, mm. and uh, I need you, I think you should be cracking the whip more, right? The team needs to be going faster. And I said, you know, you know, I think maybe I've done a poor job communicating our progress so far. Um, let's review that. But also, I'm going to ask you to, like, you know, be a little bit more patient, right? You know, you handed me a team in distress. You fired the previous guy. You know, no one gets fired in Germany, right? You fired the oh, previous Oh, yeah, okay. And his two right-hand men, right? And then this is COVID and all this stuff. You know, you got to have some realistic expectations. And, and I said, you know, and if you're not willing to wait, wait a little longer, then I'm the wrong guy because this is the solution I have, right? And, but so, you know, he waited. And then another three months came, went by. And so six months into this gig, and he came to me and said, you were absolutely right. Data is everywhere. You know, and uh, people here in this podcast who are on the team will recognize that term, right? But you know, yeah. but it, it it paid off, right? It paid off, and we were exceeding all our goals, right? But I admit I had a crisis of faith too. When he said that to me, I was kind of like, maybe I do need to crack the whip more. Maybe I'm not being directive enough, you know. And so, you know, and, and but. But I had done like I had notes on every person. I talked, I had notes to, you know from every one on one. Talked about their, you know, try to understand their motivation, what their constraints are, what their blockers were, and so on and so on. And going back through my own thinking, I was like, I think this is the right course. Well, and if you crack the whip, it's just going to erode any trust that the team's built for yeah. you, right? And it's like it's all gone. Yes, <laughs> I got to start over. Yes, so. right. Um, yeah, and I, I, I firmly believe that, uh, you know, you want to erode trust in your team, start handing out punishments. Yeah. I mean, right. there's a time and place for it, for sure. But yes. If, if, you, if, there's, if there's like a, a colossal screw up where it's like, it, it, and it was a malicious, for example, then you know, people who know me, I have no problem cracking whips. That's the easy part for me. Being a nice guy is actually hard for me. So um, cracking, that's the easy thing to do. I just need to be a dick and I crack the whip and then, you know, problem solved for now. But then, you know, the punch pass of the trust that we built up, that goes away. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, you know, it's, it it's, it's, your, it's your payoff. It's your payback window. Right. So yeah. like if the house is on fire, you probably don't have time to gently sit down with people and say, hey, you know, this is how you properly carry a bucket. You're like, hey, grab the freaking bucket. Let's go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you just get out. I'll give you an example. Right. So I remember um, I, was, I was contracting with one company and uh they wanted to do a cloud migration, but the existing team that was in charge of all the on-prem uh, data systems, they didn't want to go to the cloud. And they're actively undermining the, um, you know, the, C, um, the executive that brought me in and to the point where they're trying to get him fired and trying to torpedo this project, you know? And, and so this issue was made. Okay. So these guys, I think, bless their souls, but they're all gone. I yeah. fire every single one of them. And that's what happened. It was such a toxic environment. I was just like, I don't know how else you're going to solve this. These guys will never have your back ever. Right. They're actively undermining everything that you were brought in to do. And at the end of the day, uh, they're just kind of a bunch of a-holes anyway. So I don't know. I do not feel yeah. bad about the situation. And, and sometimes you're handed that situation, you know, and then that's, and then you, again, you know, you need to help. It is what it is. Right. You got to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, wow, Joe, an, an hour by super fast and I got to run. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, no worries. But uh, yeah, it's great talking with you. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, typical chat of ours. We keep talking typical for hours chat, over, over right. time here, but yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Gordon. Well, uh, right, I hope to do it again. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care.